0: He's been advisor to Presidents Clinton and Trump. And now, he's here to advise us all. Dick Morris is on 77 WABC.
1: I've been stuck in the middle with you now for almost a year. Uh, I went on the air first around March of last year. And I was just gratified to learn that the m- number of people I'm talking to has increased by sixfold fold over the course of the year. Yeah, baby. Um, which is really cool. And uh, I would like to thank um, a gentleman who owns this station uh, for putting me on.
2: The year of the The year
1: of after- That's John Katsimatidis, who uh nobody can spell his name you can pronounce it. You're lucky. But everybody's glad to know him. That's funny. So we just say cat. Cat, yeah, that's right. Um so um one talk to one talk all show about Ukraine. Let's start with the idea of the no fly zone that everybody's talking about. Uh that's the latest uh conventional wisdom talking points, and it's B.S. Uh, First of all, it's dangerous as hell for us to impose a no-fly zone, Mm. and it's useless. We don't need it. Let me start with the danger. Any no-fly zone has to involve shooting down Russian planes, which means killing Russian pilots. And if an American missile or an American or NATO uh, missile shoots down a Russian plane, You're right in the middle of World War III. Uh, Russia can't ignore that, and it could escalate very quickly into a nuclear war. Um, And if it were vitally necessary, it might be one thing, but it's not. There are obviously two kinds of aircraft that can operate over uh, Ukraine or anywhere, fixed-wing and helicopter. Fixed-wing aircraft are like the fighter jets and the F-16s and the MiGs and all of that. And they have been missing in action, MIA, over Ukraine during this entire invasion. Russia has something like 17,000 combat aircraft and Ukraine has 98. And yet Ukraine is is – Russia has not been able to establish air superiority over Ukraine. That 40-mile-long convoy that's coming in of tanks and armored personnel carriers uh, and artillery is being harassed and bombed by the tiny Ukrainian air force and the Russians have not sent up fighters to shoot him down. Hmm. The question is why? And most military analysts say that there are several reasons. First, Russia does not have, believe it or not, a lot of precision-guided munitions, PGMs. Uh, that's like the, the kinds of missiles, um, uh, SAM missiles, surface-to-air and air-to-air, which never miss. You aim you just point it, and you fire, and it always hits its target. And for some reason, the Russians really have not developed a lot of them. They haven't bought a lot of them, and they don't have a lot of them. Um, Secondly, apparently Russian pilots are trained an average of 100 hours for their flying, and American pilots in NATO are trained over 200 hours. So they're saying that the Russian pilots would perform poorly in dogfights with NATO aircraft. Uh, And they also say that Putin does not want to be exposed for having a weak Air Force uh, because the myth is that the Russian Air Force is well-nigh invincible. But whatever the reason is, and these all sound far-fetched to me, but whatever the reason is, he's not using them. And you only need a no-fly zone against fixed-wing aircraft. A helicopter you can take out easily with a Stinger missile. You don't need an enemy plane. You just need a guy with a missile on his back shooting. And that obviously would not uh, be American, even if we made the Stinger missile. It's not an American firing it. It's Ukrainian. And it's not grounds for escalating this war. So we don't need a no-fly zone, and it would be very, very dangerous to have one. Uh The the temptation to completely shut down the airspace uh, over at Ukraine with the no fly zone is significant, but it's ineffective. we're not going to shoot him down, we're not going to shut him down, and we don't have to. Um, it is possible that Russia intensifies its air at war, but it's almost the 10th day of the invasion, and they haven't done it yet, and I don't think they're going to be able to do it. Now, the, this war, most wars are won or lost, not on the battlefield, but in the home countries of the home countries that are going to war among their public opinion. Always in a democracy, the public opinion determines how long we stay, how much we fight, how many losses we can tolerate. And even in a dictatorship, uh, that works because the casualties come home to everyone and the government can't control the flow of information when it's actually body bags of their children coming home. So and, for example, in Vietnam, we never lost on the battlefield. We lost in public opinion in the U.S. when uh, vast numbers of people decided that the war was wrong, that it was unwinnable, and that we shouldn't be fighting it. And uh, when the public support for that war evaporated, we had to pull out. Uh, in Korea, they did not evaporate. They, people remained steadfast, and we saw Korea through to a final victory. Russia was forced out of Afghanistan because of the casualties. In fact, the whole Soviet Union fell in 1989, partially due to the casualties in Afghanistan. And what's going on now is the first cracks are appearing in the solid wall of support that Putin hopes to count on. There was a report recently about dissent among members of the Politburo who said who were talking about how they did not anticipate there would be such a major invasion. Uh, They were not told there would be one. They thought that Putin was just going to go after the two breakaway provinces and then call it quits. And they said, we can't disagree because you can only disagree from prison in this country. But that's a quote. But one of them said, and they were all quoted in this news story, it is EFT, this whole situation is EFT, and uh, that's a hell of a description. And I think that you're beginning to see real, real sowing of doubts among the Russian leadership about this war. Um, there also was a fascinating thing. Uh, there was a feed that aired on Russian language television. Uh, Right before the invasion of Putin meeting with his top advisors and top officials, including the guy who's the head of the CIA in Russia. And Putin polls the room and says, do you support the war? Do you oppose invasion? Should I invade? Shouldn't I invade? And he goes, this is like the day before he invaded. And when he gets up to the CIA guy, he kind of equivocates. And Putin says, no, don't equiv- equivocate. you got to tell me, yes or no, what do you think? And he again equivocates, and Putin has, gets really angry and screams at him, you've never been good, you're, you're no good, so on and so on. And then finally he mumbles or murmurs that I guess it would be okay. And uh, it was a public dressing down, aired on Russian television in Russia and in Russia. And my friend John Jordan, who's... I work closely with is fluent in Russian and is monitoring Russian language TV, and reported this. and I think it's important, and I think it's significant. So there are beginning to be cracks in the Kremlin. So when you start seeing that, it's alarm bells go off. And then by the same token, in the one city in Ukraine that Russia has occupied, Kharkov, uh, there are massive street demonstrations going on right under the noses of the Russian tanks and troops against the Russian invasion. And obviously those demonstrations will be put down militarily, but... It's very interesting that they are, that the people of Ukraine are willing to carry this fight into the streets and then probably into the mountains and into the into the forests and constitute a guerrilla force. And I think increasingly, Russia is going to realize that it might eat Ukraine, but it can't digest it. I've got
2: a tiger body. I won't be much when you get through with me. Well, I'm a losing weight and I'm turning mighty pale. Looks like I've got a tiger by
1: the tail. And Russia does have a tiger by the tail. It is very hard to suppress 45 million people who don't want to be governed by you, Uh particularly when you're a nation of 145 million. Those are not... 10 to 1 odds. And I think that this is the very beginning of a pattern that may dominate for the next year, two years, even maybe five or 10 years of Russia having a permanent problem in the Ukraine with daily casualties, a guerrilla war, street assassinations, uh, strikes on convoys, uh, going from city to city, um, all kinds of rogue Ukrainian activity. You have a lot of people, 45 million people, they're all armed. The government's been passing out rifles. They all hate the Russians and the Russian invasion, and they're determined to fight like hell against it. And I think that that that's going to cause a drip, drip, drip of casualties in Russia that's going to erode support for the war and really punish Putin. So when people say, who's going to win in the Ukraine? The right answer is over what period of time? Mm. In the next four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, probably Russia. In the next year or two years, probably Ukraine. Uh, because they just simply can't digest them. The most important comment of this was on by Winston Churchill. I've said this before on the show that when Hitler invaded, Ukraine, invaded uh, Norway and conquered it, uh, Churchill said the flies have conquered the flypaper so because they said that the Russians are going to have no end of trouble with the Norwegian people, and they did. Russia had to keep over 30,000 troops in Norway all during World War Two, essentially out of the war, policing Norway to stop anti-German uh, attacks and guerrilla warfare, and uh, I think that Putin has bitten this stuff off, and I think he's probably going to choke on it.
0: Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77
3: WABC. And get down the stairs. Let me
1: We're talking all things Ukraine and the war going on. Let's go to Stu in Brooklyn. Hi, Stu. Oh, good afternoon,
2: Dick. Good, Dick.
3: The, yeah, the key to Russia's uh, military support is the money from the oil. Take away yep. that oil support, and you really hurt them. About a third of their economy is oil. Is nothing like the smell of a burning oil refinery in the morning.
1: Yep, <laughs> a third of the Ukrainian economy, of the Russian economy, is oil and gas, and uh, absolutely, it, it's it, they're, a, they're basically like Saudi Arabia and uh, with nuclear weapons. And um, so it's absolutely pivotal. The problem is that it would be very simple to stop this Russian invasion. We just stop buying their oil and stop buying their gas, and the whole country falls apart. Putin's overthrown in a couple of days. The problem is that if we do that, Russia will cut off supplies to Western Europe. If we do that, NATO will fall apart. Mm. But... America could have solved this problem under Trump by shipping them oil and gas. But we can't do that now because Biden has cut off our shipments to ourselves. Idiot. And we don't have the uh, the oil and the gas to be able to send to Europe. Uh, and, there, and the shortage is causing higher oil prices and gas prices in the U.S. and in Europe. But more importantly, it is enabling the Russians – to continue with this invasion. So Biden and the green movement, these well-meaning environmentalists who want to save the planet and take account of no other consideration, just climate change. And whether you believe it or not, that's the only thing they care about. And they don't care what kind of planet they save. And the, (laughs) and the the point is that they're going to save a slave state, everybody enslaved to oil. Uh, Despite their efforts to minimize the use of oil, they have empowered oil to be the determinant of international relations and whether countries are free or not. They've given oil a power that it never had when it was just an energy source. Uh, Let's go to um, Kay in Manhattan. How are you, Kay?
3: Hello. Well, thank you.
0: I'd I'd like to uh, ask you if you think that that perhaps uh Russia and the Chinese communists have something over Biden because he came in and he uh, obviously the closing of the Keystone pipeline and shutting the everything down was it was a determination that was made before he became president right. and why why can't he open it uh even just for the people of the United States, if we can't get it to Europe, uh, do you think there's a validity in that, that yeah. somehow they have, they have some goods on him?
1: Yeah, I well, they do have goods on him. Uh, if the full transactions of the Biden family with Russia and with uh, China were ever exposed, he would probably be impeached. So they do have that. But I don't think that's the specific reason he's he's chickening out here. Uh, He's chickening out, but you've got the bully wrong. It's not Russia or China. It's the environmentalists in the United States, Hmm. the green movement, who see no other priority other than focusing on reducing our oil and gas usage. And they they look at the world with blinders on and just see this one thing. The other point that I think is really important to understand here is to the left – Higher gas prices are not a problem. They are an accomplishment. They are successful. They want higher gas prices. Europe, you know, has these gigantic taxes on gas. So oil costs about three times, gas for your car, costs three times as much in Europe as it does here. Not because the gas is more expensive, but because the government imposes prohibitive taxes on it. Way, way higher than our taxes. And the goal of that is to raise the cost of petrol or gas so people drive less, they use less, there's less pollution, there's less carbon emissions, and there's theoretically less global warming. And that is the policy tool they have chosen to stop oil and gas use and to deal with climate change. They want higher prices. It's like saying, why are cigarettes more expensive? Well, they're not more expensive. It's just the government wants to stop you from smoking, so they raise the taxes mm-hmm. on it. It's the same thing with oil. And, and they do not regard high fuel prices as being a negative. They regard it as a positive. And that's the worldview that Biden has to deal with because they control the Democratic Party and they control his political power base. Uh, gas prices rise. Let's have a party. Let's nope. go to my favorite friend Judith in Brooklyn. Hi, Judith.
0: Hi, you put so much pressure on me. How are you guys? <laughs> okay. Hi, nice Judith. To hear you.
1: Hi, Judith. Hi, Judith. Listen,
0: great. you know, I don't have—I don't have a crystal ball. And by the way, I find it interesting as I'm listening. Uh, climate change doesn't seem the rules of climate change doesn't seem to apply to China and Russia. <laughs> you know, worry. when it comes to John Kerry, it doesn't seem that they could do whatever they want. They could, you right. know, when it comes to climate change, just but pause. Us, they just,
1: just pause for pardon? a second, Judith. Pause for one second. Let me just amplify that. When uh, at the start of the Obama administration, the United States was causing about 45% of the world's carbon emissions and China was causing about 20%. Now those numbers are flipped. China is causing about half of it and the U.S. is causing less than 20% of it. So we have not accomplished anything in reducing overall global emissions. We have simply traded places with China. So we're limiting ours Great. and they're not limiting theirs. Go ahead though, please.
0: Great. Thank you. And also uh, another thing, by the way, I'm going to I'm going to take you on a detour and I'm gonna ask you about John Bolton, so I'm getting you ready. But before that, two other things. Solar and wind does energy does not work, has never worked. It's doomed to fail and they know it. Why they're doing this over here, why they bought Obamacare that they knew was going to be a train wreck wasn't going to work. Why they're all doing this, I have no idea. But I'll tell you, Biden has done everything from day one to literally cripple and goth bit create the demise of democracy in America. But, and, you know, Dick, it's like he's working for Russia and China doing this to us. Judith, he's like me, a Manchurian president.
1: But, so let me let me put you on pause again. <laughs> um, oil, solar and wind have been very successful in Europe where there's a plain, there's no mountains, there's, it's just like the open fields, it's all like Kansas. And uh, wind has been effective and, uh, and solar works when the sun is shining. Uh, but in the U.S. it has not worked as well and won't work as well. And with all of this effort, all of this publicity about going renewable sources and everything, the total of renewable sources is now only 18% of our total generation of electricity, and twelve of those eighteen points, two thirds of it is nuclear and hydro, which we've always had. The actual stuff of solar and wind is only about six or seven percent of our energy generation. So uh, go ahead, Judith. Push play.
0: I'm laughing, and I'm laughing because you're so you're so brilliant that I'm I'm astounded at your brilliance. So I just so I want to tell you as far as uh, uh, as far as Russia. So this is with Russia. That's why I'm saying about Biden. He's working more for Russia and China than for us all the time, which, which leads me to think that he's a uh, mentor president. I don't care. Uh, but as far as Russia's concerned, I think that Russia is not afraid of us for sure. He's afraid of China. So he made a deal with China. And the thing that he thought he's going to take Ukraine easily, he didn't think it's going to be this hard, is because China, uh, Ukraine is a very rich country. It's got wheat that they don't have. It's got all kinds of stuff. It's got oil as well, I think, and everything. And therefore, he's aligning himself uh, with China to keep him, you know, with the, the two should be friends together and not have enemies. Because Judith, China, I think he's more afraid of China.
1: I'm going yes? to talk more about China uh, in the next segment. Um, so okay. go on to your question about Bolton.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. And by the way, uh, with the body bags, with Russians, you know, they have a cremated trucks of cremation that they cremate these Russian uh, soldiers' bodies before they can get anywhere. Yeah. It's like so absurd. The, mu- the as far as John- they had
1: children. Yeah. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> as far as John Bolton goes, I said, you know what? I was reading an interview with him and he's lately he was on John Cansom TV Show, whatever. Could you please tell me, Dick Morris? Because I respect your opinion. Could you please analyze John Bolton to me? Because I, I, I've
1: I, known I've known yeah. John very well, and I was uh, very happy when he was appointed uh, to uh, to the high office in the Trump administration, and um, I was appalled when he turned on Trump and started to attack Trump over this garbage Ukrainian issue about you know. You know, his uh, using Ukraine to discredit Biden. Uh, it was just insane and it was stupid of Bolton to throw away his leverage like that. That's the only thing I've ever heard from John Bolton's lips that I haven't agreed with, but it was enough to kill him. And uh, it was so tragic that someone who is so right thinking uh, has no power anymore. He reminds me of Dick Holbrook, my previous idol. Uh, under Clinton, who I spent full time trying to promote and um, and so on. Well, thank you, Judith. But after we go, I want to just tell a quick story about um, Dick Holbrook. He was the guy that solved the Bosnian War. And I worked very closely with him during that period. And he's died since. And uh, he called me uh, at the start of Clinton's second term and said, I want to be Secretary of State and have a meeting with Clinton in a few, in a day or two, what should I do? And I said, when you walk into that room, John, criticize Clinton in the first minute of the meeting. Unless you criticize Clinton, he thinks you're useless. If you you suggest something to him that he's doing wrong, that he can change, he'll think he needs you and he'll bring you close and keep you. But if all you do is praise him, you're sunk. And um, so I called him right after the meeting, and I said, how did it go? He said, oh, it was so great. It was the most incredible meeting. Um, he, told me, he, he told me that I was the most qualified to be Secretary of State. And I said, "Dumkoff," that means he's going to appoint Madeleine Albright. <laughs> it means that he wants a woman. And he's telling you you're the most qualified, but, you know, suck it up because I got to name a woman. And then I said, did you criticize him? he said, no, I couldn't because he was so happy. He was so up. He'd just given a great speech, and he was so up. And I said, you're not going to get this job. (laughs) You didn't criticize the guy in the first two minutes of the meeting.
0: It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC.
1: I love doing this show, and one of the reasons is I love talking to the intelligent people who call in. Um, so William in Westchester disagrees with me about no-fly zones, so go to it with him. Tell me where I'm wrong.
3: I totally agree with you. My point oh, I see. is okay. uh, I was a Navy type, but I studied a bit, uh, read up about the Air Force a- AWACS, the Airborne right. Warning and Control System. Right. That is a NATO aircraft. Why could it not fly over NATO territory and yeah. give targeting information to Ukrainian ground forces?
1: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And then the missiles would be fired by Ukrainians, uh, and and we can easily get them enough SAMs to be effective. Very good point. Glad I took your call. Thank you, William. Let's go to George in Rockland County, who I think does disagree with me on no-fly zones. Hey, George.
2: Well, Thank you for taking my call, uh, Mr. Morris. I really appreciate it. Okay, I like listening to you because, on many aspects, I do agree with you. I have a different philosophy when it comes to no-fly jo- zone. Uh, you know, you know the saying. Okay, you can cannot make an omelette without breaking the eggs. Okay, nice. uh, I didn't make it up. It's been there for a long time. Uh, I like to also remind you as a student of history, probably much better than I am, okay, that during World War II, uh, the Jewish community, as far as I understand, here in this country, asked the Allies, please, to bomb and yes. destroy the death, the death camps, okay? Yes. yes, Now, I'm saying all these things here, okay, and I'll give you another one here, okay? Uh, when you look on our, our police force here, anywhere here, okay, their job here is to take off and eradicate criminal activity. Now, while they're doing it, okay, they do have a risk, okay? Yeah. But this comes to the territory. Military is not to shine boots and march. Yep. Their, you know, their job here is to eradicate evil. Okay. And in this Thank you. case, I believe, and I believe strongly, okay, that doing a no-fly zone will just enhance uh, the objective. And the last okay. thing i like to say... I'm, to I'm sorry,
1: wait, my, George, I've got to get going, but let me comment on what you just said. Um, George is pointing out the assets of what a no-fly zone could accomplish, and I think he's right. But the problem is that until we see significant action by fixed-wing aircraft of Russian planes um, over Ukraine, um, and the, what's a no-fly zone going to accomplish? Uh, no-fly zone would not shoot down missiles. That's not no-fly. That's Iron Dome, and we should give the Ukrainians the Iron Dome and teach them how to operate it. Um, but shooting down Russian manned aircraft is a very different kind of thing. The Iron Dome in Israel? Yeah, that, that we developed with Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the problems that this war is exposing is that we way overestimated the impact and the strength of Russian ground forces, of the Red Army. We way over... We, we thought they were invincible, 10 feet tall. And it turns out that it's a pretty rotten, lousy army. Mm. might still defeat the Ukrainians, but it's composed of conscripts who don't know why they're fighting or even where they are, uh, who didn't even know they were about to enter a war. They thought... It was just another day of training. The pilots have had very little training and don't know what the hell they're doing. There haven't been reports of it, but I'm sure alcohol is a big problem in maintaining troop um, viability. Vodka. Yeah, vodka. <laughs> Remember, Russia is the only country in the world where there is a significant difference in life expectancy between the genders. Men are 10 years less likely to live than women really, because of vodka. Because of drinking, alcoholism is the leading cause of death in Russia for non-elderly people.
0: Wow, I didn't know that,
1: wow. and you know, I mean, it's enormous. Uh, so this is an army. This is an army of drunk kids, <laughs> and, uh, and and not shouldn't be taken as seriously as we have in the past. Oh, no! You know, Democrats are pessimists. They look at everything and they say, "Ooh, this is terrible." That's why they way overreacted on COVID. It's why they're they're freaked out about climate change and global warming. It's why they're always afraid of going to war. Uh, they're they're pessimists. They're fearful. Liberals are that way, and. Um, conservatives and Republicans are more likely to say, I can handle it, I can do it, I can deal with it, I can overcome it. And sometimes, yeah, that leads to a stupid bravado that gets us into trouble. But more of the time, it's the fear of the left that gets us into trouble. And this is an example of that. Russia is this big, gigantic monster, and their army is so powerful. Well, in World War II, it was. I mean, they were terrible at the start of the war, but then eventually they wore down the Nazis. by dint of manpower and with the U.S. providing almost 90% of their military equipment. But the the point is that this vaunted Red Army we've been worrying about, they have a lot of nuclear weapons, but they don't have much else. Um, Now, I believe that as this war unfolds, China is learning a lot. And I believe that it is having a real effect in deterring Chinese attack on Taiwan, because I think the Chinese are looking at this and saying, hey, these sanctions are enormously effective. They're absolutely killing Russia. And China is much more vulnerable to sanctions than Russia is. We, for example, get about 7% of our economy from export sales to other countries. China gets over 20%. So if there's a worldwide embargo against China, it absolutely destroys that regime. And there's no ideology holding this regime up. It's all economic. It's all, I'm making some money, so I'm not going to object. But if the economy begins to fall apart, that leadership is in peril. So we have to realize that the idea of economic sanctions cuts both ways.
2: Knife that cuts both
3: ways.
2: It's driven deep into my heart each time that I
3: realize
2: how it cuts both ways. Can't be together, cannot live apart. We're heading straight into a broken heart, but I can't stop. Feel
1: too much, let you go, you the Russians and the Chinese way underestimated the impact of economic sanctions. So did American public opinion. I think I knew better because I saw its effect in Bosnia, very close up hand when I worked for Clinton. But the economic sanctions applied the way they are now really, really, really screws a country up. And we're not going all the way. Uh, we're still allowing the energy sector to escape. We'll talk about that in a minute. And we uh, have not applied the SWIFT system universally to all Russian banks, but we've applied it enough. And uh, I think that they, we, they did not anticipate, neither Russia nor China, how effective those sanctions would be. Look, the fundamental fact about American economy is most of the stuff we make, we consume. Most of our, uh, we basically are an island in the rest of the world. We don't import a hell of a lot, and we don't export hell of a lot. Most of what we make, we consume, and most of what we need, we make. Uh, with the reduction in oil exports under Trump, uh, that becomes doubly and triply true. And we're luxurious, we're very rich, so a little dent really bothers us, uh, but... But it's only a dent if that stuff dries up. Whereas China uh, only consumes uh, only about only about three quarters of what it consumes. It makes, uh, and and that sounds like a big number, but it's not. Uh, you take a quarter of a bite out of the country's economy, and it absolutely falls apart. So China is really, really dependent on the rest of the world. And Russia is even more dependent because of energy exports that are over a third of all Russian exports are energy. So both of those countries are very, very vulnerable. Glass houses throwing stones. And they should have been more careful when they did that. Now, the other thing that shocked uh, Russia, I believe, and I think is deterring China, is the unbelievable unanimity of the Western position on their
3: aggression. Oh, we stand and if
1: Nobody believed that NATO would pull together like it did. Now, I just looked at Fox News, my bete noir there's a uh, There's a headline on the screen that said uh, nato u s pulls NATO together despite trump's attacks on our on our NATO allies. Hey, they got it wrong. It's because of trump's attack on our NATO, on our NATO allies that NATO is pulling together now. NATO was a weak entity that basically had no power. It was spending like 1% of its GDP on defense. Uh, We were spending about five. uh, NATO was spending about one. And Trump went over there to the NATO conference. Instead of making nice like everybody else did there and talking about Normandy and D-Day and all that, he said, you guys are not putting up your fair share. And if you don't, don't expect us to bail you out. We're going to pull our troops out. And the threat and the and the chastisement had a tremendous effect on NATO. And they increased their spend. They about tripled their defense spending relative to the size of their economies. And they became really good Put and up really or shut strong. Up. What? Put up or shut up. Yeah. And Europe really responded. And uh, we're seeing it now in the unity and the strength of NATO. But... I believe that China has to look at this and take a lot of pause before it invades Taiwan.
0: At Priority dot com. That's Priority dot com. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC.
3: let right.
1: Let's go to Jonathan in New Jersey. Hey Jonathan.
2: Good afternoon, Mr. Hi. Morris. It is exactly correct what you said about a few minutes ago about Trump putting pressure on NATO to yeah. uh, right. to help the defense. But here is the, the nature of my call. The Biden administration led by John Kerry, the eco-warriors, celebrating high gasoline prices. <laughs> so wouldn't very elevated gasoline prices over time cause massive inflation and it will destroy the U.S. economy?
1: Yes, it would. Uh, You're right. But uh, an oil embargo with Russia would not cause skyrocketing gas prices. It would cause some increase but not a huge increase. Let me give you the stats. The United States imports about 3.5 million barrels of oil a day, crude oil used to import eight or nine, but now it's down to about three and a half. And of that, 190,000 barrels a day comes from Russia. So you're talking about 3%, 4% of our total oil imports. And that'll increase prices slightly and, you know, maybe half, maybe 50 cents or something. You got to realize most of the increase in gas prices you're getting now is not because of shortage of gas supplies because of imports or because we're Keystone Pipeline or any of that stuff. That's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. This is only round one of the price increases. What's happening now is the energy futures are speculating that the war is going to really screw things up. And as a hedge, they're raising prices. It takes a while from the time you get oil in the ground through a refinery on trucks to a pump and then into a car. And they have need to hedge that by raising the prices in anticipation of what's going to happen. And but what's going to come is when the supply really kicks in, and the lack of pipelines and the lack of fracking and all that stuff begins to really hurt. You're going to see prices go up even higher than they are now. But the increase in but if we cut off Russian uh, oil supplies to the U.S. It's not going to do a whole hell of a lot. The important thing to realize about our energy situation is we import, as I said, about five and a half million barrels a day. And about 4.9 of that comes from Canada. And another like two or three hundred thousand comes from Mexico. And then you drop down to 200,000 is Russia and 180 is Saudi Arabia and so on. But those are not going to be lethal to us. But let's go to uh, Adam from Connecticut.
3: Hi there. Hi. Um, Good to talk to you. Thank you. (laughs) I just needed to first make a point. Um, The Keystone Pipeline is not finished. It's only 7% finished, correct? Correct. 8%, Right. 8% something like that. Yeah. So some lady called in earlier and said, "Oh, if you open up, we need to open up the Keystone pipeline. That wouldn't yeah. have no effect immediately on that. It would take years yeah. before that would be done." Second, that Keystone pipeline is gas uh, oil from can- Canada, if I'm correct, right? Right. Right. Yeah, so that's not our oil either.
1: Yeah, but uh it it's our gas and uh, about and and a large part of the inflation. You're correct it wouldn't affect our cars. <laughs> okay, it would so affect the- home so heating. The- So Canada could be selling that oil
3: to us, but we're, uh, I'm a Republican, but I hear a lot of this talk about the Keystone pipeline. It's like a trigger word for for other Republicans, but it's not, it's not oil. So it's not, that has no effect on us. So you need to make that very clear. You didn't correct your lady. Okay. But
1: bear in mind that the, that the the whole constellation of anti-oil activity of this administration has been enormous in terms of this issue. Uh, it's caused American oil imports to rise from about uh, from about three million a day barrels a day up to almost four and five million, and uh, and that's because they didn't issue drilling permits. They they closed down fracking projects. Uh, they eliminated pipelines that were. Uh, that were included were transporting the stuff they closed off the Arctic and they did a whole range they limited oil drilling permits and they've really really cut our oil production but go ahead you had another point
3: yeah so this goes to the larger point which is let's use Russia as the analogy of a drug dealer right oil is a drug we're all addicted to it Russia Iran uh Syria all these despots they're all the leading drug dealers in the world Right, what we're saying, what you want to say is, let's get the way to actually hurt these people, to bring them out of power. The world stops buying oil from Russia. The world stops buying oil from Saudi Arabia. I told them they become literally it's the dark ages for yeah, these countries that's, again. That's right? abs-
1: that's absolutely true. But the problem okay. is, what do we use instead? Uh well, the, we could use
3: renewable. I, I, yeah, I have. Let me just say, I happen to have a PhD in 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 actual environmental renewable sciences, and the actual it's we're moving. It's going to happen. It, it's a, it's not a matter of if. It's it's when and how quickly the world gets away from that. And uh, you know, your generation, the boomers, are going to be dead. And I'm not saying in a negative way, but they're going to be dead before that happens. But Ow. the world is. I'll,
1: I'll be positively world, dead. <laughs>
3: I'm sorry, <laughs> but the world but, is moving. The world me, is moving I'm not away.
1: I, we're going to have to close it down in a sec because of time. But I okay, But we need. What I'm saying
3: is, we if we if the, we want to hurt Putin, we have to get off oil. Yeah.
1: Well, we have to get off his oil. Right. Uh, look, the uh, the we're way way ahead of ourselves now in trying to convert to renewable sources. Uh, the uh, the as I said, the total of its contribution to electric power of renewable sources is now about 8%. And when Obama took office, it was about 3 or 4%. hasn't gone up a whole hell of a lot. The renewable sources have gone up, but that's mainly nuclear and hydro. Um, and so among renewables, sunshine and wind and all that stuff, it's very slow. And uh, I hope it comes. I hope it succeeds. I support it. But I, I don't want to give up uh, food until we get an acceptable alternative. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Uh, let's go to uh, Jack, in, uh, Hackensack. Jack in Hackensack. Hey, Jack.
2: Hello, Dick. How are you? I'm good. Dick, I want to see a few block. I have a few blockbusters for you. This is G.I. Geno, Jersey Jack back in Hackensack, American Marine veteran. And let me tell you Thanks something. Thanks for your service. Where was the Pope weeks and months before? Why did he wait a week after the invasion? He was just like Pius who looked the other way and didn't stand up to Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin. History repeats itself. Yep. Where's Steven Seagal? Did you know that that, that, that Steven Seagal, the, a U.S. actor, he's been in Putin's inner circle for years now? Really? That could be considered so, treason.
1: So let me, and this
3: is a disgrace.
1: Let me go back to the Pope here. Um, I think it is unfortunate that he did not speak out earlier. Um, it does remind me, though, of what Joe Stalin said. He said, how many divisions is the Pope got? <laughs> and when you look at the uh, uh, country that is basically Russian Orthodox, not Catholic, um, which is Russia and Ukraine is Greek Orthodox and uh, Poland is the only Catholic country and they're not at war. I'm not sure that that was decisive. Uh, let's go to Ken in New Jersey. Hey, Ken.
2: Hi. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, what Putin wants uh, is something that he's wanted for a long time, and that is to be a member of uh, NATO. And I think that uh, he's asked to be invited. it's like, you know,
1: like saying Satan wants to be in the kingdom of heaven. Well,
3: you <laughs> know, the purpose I, of NATO, I, I think that the purpose of I NATO is has, to
1: is to is to oppose Russia if Russia didn't exist. If Russia had continued down the road that it had with Yeltsin, where it was not anti Western, not anti the US, NATO would be dissolved. It was on the route to being dissolved. And um, it only came back into being when Putin took over. And NATO exists because of Putin. So it, you got it completely backwards. Uh, because NATO exists, because Putin exists, NATO exists. If Putin went away and was replaced by somebody who was law-abiding and didn't want to blow up the world, NATO would not exist. So we've had a nice show, and we've talked about some stuff that I don't think you'll hear anywhere else. That's for sure. That the uh, no-fly zone debate is a crock of BS because uh, we're not having problems with fixed-wing aircraft in Ukraine, yet the Russian Air Force is AWOL, and – we don't need a no-fly zone to shoot the helicopters down. Um, what we do need is the Iron Dome system should be given to Ukraine. That'll take care of the missiles that are destroying their cities. We talked about the dissent that's brewing in the Kremlin, that there are real signs that the that Putin is losing his constituency and and that those are the guys that could topple him from power. We've learned that the idea of that if Russia wins this war, it probably loses it because the resistance and the guerrilla warfare that this will cause in in Ukraine. And I don't know how long a run, Doug. It it might be months. It might be years. Could be decades. But the, the guerrilla war in Afghanistan went on for 10 years. And we've also learned that China is probably learning from this invasion not to invade Taiwan. So thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you, Dick.
3: Yes, I'm stuck in
1: the middle.